What's your name, fat body? Gary Hoffman. What's your name, scumbag? Shannon Farron. Sound off like you got a pair. Kiss me goodbye and write me while I'm gone. I'm asking f***ing questions here, private. Do you understand? Goodbye, my sweetheart. Hello, Vietnam. Gary. From now on, you're Gomer Pyle. Shannon. I'll be watching you. Gary and Shannon. You know that, don't you? You don't scare me. You keep saying you got something for me. Something you call love, but confess. You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin'. And now someone else is getting all your best. I laid awake last night. Because you were so excited to come into work today and talk about all of the horror of the weekend. Do you ever do that? Do you ever like, do you ever rehearse the show in your head? Like how it's going to go? No. I did last night. How'd it go? Not well. Not well. Because it felt like every time I started talking about the weekend that we had, I would just get to the point where I'd stop talking and go, what, how, you can't talk. There's nothing you can say. That brings closure to it. There's nothing that brings any understanding to it. There's nothing that brings any sort of uh, relevance to it. It doesn't. How do you? What do you even say? Well, you're you're very uh, you're very different in 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 the way that you're looking at this. Because if you listen to anybody else, they know exactly what it is. They they think it's guns. Or they think it's mental illness, or they think it's misogyny. Everyone has their pet project that they're pointing to. Yeah, that's um, there. There is something we'll get to a little bit later. I wanted to talk about. It was an article that was brought to our attention by another show, actually, and it was describing the commonalities between mass shootings in the United States recently. And it's an interesting study at, at what what we look at in terms of what we see as the four main things that are in common with these mass shootings, but also how to address each one of them. Even though it's in the LA Times, the number one thing is not gun control, which I thought was kind of interesting as you read through it. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the president's response to it today, uh, his misstep. He called it Toledo instead of Dayton. But, but so did Biden. So did Biden. Biden said Michigan and, uh, and Houston. Houston. Yeah. So everybody screwed up. Everyone's having senior moments. Um, later in the show, we'll talk more about and break down sort of the the issues of what we do from this point forward, if there is such a thing. But we also have to start the uh, the Dow internationally. The Dow is down 714 points right now. We have been watching this because China has fought back against the tariffs that the president announced at the end of last week. And that's why we're seeing the markets go down. We'll keep an eye on that. Uh, any updates from whether it's Dayton or El Paso, we'll bring them to you. But we do have to start with El Paso because just within the last few minutes or so, the hospital there in El Paso confirmed the death of yet another person. So the death toll from the shooting Saturday morning in El Paso is now at 22. I read this morning about 4chan and 8chan and 8chan's cybersecurity provider cut it off for what it called a cesspool of hate following those shootings, but it has quickly found a new online home. Of course it did. This I'm not going to say where it is, no, but I'm just necessary. saying these are the the sites, I think. And, and like you said this morning, can we just turn the Internet off? Can we just do that? 
because these crazy guys, they go on and they feel emboldened. All they need is one other monster on 4chan or 8chan or whatever it is to say, yeah, your plan to kill a bunch of people sounds great. You should go do that. All they need is one person to tell them that that's a good plan. And they're finding those people. Now, is there, there was a time when concerns uh, when someone's ideas that were outside of the normal way that we treat other human beings for example somebody who had a fantasy of killing somebody that person would live in obscurity in a basement or out in the woods and they would never have an interaction with anybody else who felt like or thought like they did and now we've got this opportunity to communicate with anybody at any time but we're and not really communicating. No. Human interaction is at an all-time low, and I think it plays a huge role in this. There, Social media, actual human-to-human contact, looking in somebody's eyes and having a conversation. We don't do that a hell of a lot anymore. There's actually one of those articles that says exactly that, that the number of social interactions yes. that a community has yes. can have an impact or, or is, a, is a sign of, of those communities that are at risk of mass shootings like this. Because people are, we're finding ourselves further and further cut off from actual human interaction. And I don't think that's a good thing. Oh, not at all. You like look, we at, need look at how teenagers interact today. Right. This, I mean, it, it's clear. It is a clear indication that there's something wrong and no one is doing anything about it or not enough people are doing anything about it. I did find that, that article fascinating about the things that all of these shooters have in common. They looked at 155 mass shootings from 2005 to 2018. And they found that a lot of times mental health professionals in the area are a key indicator of whether or not a shooting is going to happen in a particular place. They found that communities where mental health care needs were not being made had significantly higher risks of mass shootings. So what areas are that? Probably poorer areas, probably urban areas. Yeah, the the um and then right, the closeness of the community was an important factor. The data reveals that those communities with a greater number of daily social interactions were less likely to suffer mass shootings. If you look at the communities where these events occurred, the average individual had 10 and a half to 11 people that they commonly associate with compared to an average of 13 or so close associations in communities where they don't occur. That's a weird thing to me. I mean, to look at it in such a clinical way like that and say that a community that has those fewer social interactions would be at risk of a mass shooting, uh, not because the community has done something wrong, but it's an indicator that there are people that are living there who feel alone. Yes. They they feel like this is the only way for them to act out whatever, whatever, I don't know, digression, whatever penalty has been imposed upon them for being different they feel like violence is the only way for them to fight back there was an op-ed in the la times that we referenced as well with uh four things that we can find in in common with these shooters and let's do that when we come back all right gary and shannon will continue uh on this very very tough day it is monday august 5th Back to Gary and Shannon with Gary Hoffman and 
Shannon Farron. Keeping an eye on the Dow, it is down more than 700 points as our trade war seems to escalate with China. S&P 500 heading for its worst day of the year. Of course, the president announced last week that 10 percent tariff on the $300 billion worth of Chinese imports. China has now responded, allowed its currency to fall to the lowest level against the dollar in more than a decade. Been telling you about the uh, shootings that, of course, dominated the news over the weekend. The first one Saturday morning in El Paso, Texas, at a Walmart. Uh, at least 22 people have died. There were two more that were announced today. Uh, police in uh, Dayton, Ohio. Say a 24-year-old guy opened fire at a very popular entertainment district known as the Oregon District. I, I wanted to I wanted to talk about that particular shooter for a second because the guy from El Paso, he went on 4chan or 8chan, whatever it is, and he did his manifesto. Right. So he there was a wave to, to maybe flag him before this happened. And then the the Dayton shooter, he had red flags all over the place. Yeah. He apparently was kicked out of high school for making hit lists about students whom he wanted to rape, kill, and skin. He wrote the list on a bathroom wall and in a notebook that was recovered by school officials. Now, he was suspended, but was eventually allowed back to the high school after writing a letter of apology to his proposed victims. That's a red flag. That name should be in a database, and he should be monitored for, you know, they're letting us know who they are before they commit these shootings. Yeah, all we have to do is listen to them. They're showing themselves to us, and we're not doing anything. Now, the the guy in El Paso, my understanding is that his uh, screed, his writings, that they were posted minutes before he went on his rampage. That That it was 20 minutes, basically, between his posting and the time that the shots were fired. And, in fact, I read yesterday that law enforcement had been notified about what he had written and posted because he talked about, I think I'm going to die today or I'm probably going to die today. They couldn't do anything because it didn't have anything about who he was. It didn't have anything about a location or what the target was going to be or anything. But it's it's one of those things that this is so, one of the commonalities is that they point themselves out. Right. We see them coming and can't do anything about them. Pulse shooter, same thing. He was being investigated by the FBI. Um, so uh, Jillian, Phil, uh, Jillian Peterson is a psychologist, a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamline University, and James Densley, sociologist at uh, Metropolitan State University. And they run something called the Violence Project. And I, we've reached out to them to see if they'll come on and talk to us about this op-ed piece that showed up in the uh, L.A. Times yesterday. It's about four commonalities among these perpetrators in mass shootings. And the first commonality is that the vast majority of these guys experienced early childhood trauma, exposure to violence at a young age. Yeah, and the nature of that can be a lot of different things, obviously physical or sexual abuse or neglect or even domestic violence. But they also talk about the potential for it to be as extreme as parental suicide uh, or as common as severe bullying for some of these kids. And, and that 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 early trauma eventually manifested itself in a bunch of other mental health concerns, depression, anxiety, uh, thought disorders, even um, uh, suicide, suicidal thoughts on their own behalf. The second commonality is practically every mass shooter they studied had reached an identifiable crisis point in the weeks or months leading up to the shooting. They often had become angry and despondent because of a specific 
grievance. What's interesting is that they also, from the types of shootings that we've seen, they sort of break it down into school shooters and workplace shooters. Um, Because outside of what we saw this weekend, which were sort of random place, you know, just basically a soft target and go in, the workplace shooters would see a change in their stop uh, job status, which was often a, a trigger. For shooters in other contexts, relationship rejection, uh, loss can play a role. And a lot of times it was communicated to others through a marked change in behavior, like we're talking about. They show themselves. They express suicidal thoughts or plans or there are specific threats of violence in the recent past. Third, most of the shooters had studied the actions of other shooters and sought validation for their motives. Okay, now this is where I think we can do something. Yeah, we have a responsibility to do something. Somebody (laughs) sent us an email. I don't know if you saw this earlier. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was reading uh, in the Wall Street Journal, they talked to an intelligence specialist who said that it's hard for the intelligence community to uh, police these corners of the dark web. And I'm thinking to myself, how hard is it? Why can't you have somebody in these rooms or forums monitoring this stuff? And then a very sad thing hit me, and it's the fact that there's too many There are too many dark corners of the Internet to police. That's what he was talking about. Well, your example of 8chan having been, you know, blacked out for because of the types of information that are available on that service, chat room, whatever you want to call it. It's going to pop up somewhere else. That's the nature of the Internet. You can shut it down all you want. You could shut down all the illegal human trafficking, drug sales, child pornography. You could shut all that down. It's going to show up on somebody else's server within minutes. And I think they're constantly finding new places to go. Um, the the idea of the media and the responsibility that the media has in situations like this, I think, is important. At least it's important in terms of how it is that we try to have some impact, some way to curb some of this in the future. We'll talk about that and That fourth commonality that we're talking about, every mass shooting since 1966, and what these the the violence project found was the commonalities in all of them. We'll talk about that when we continue. Gary and Shannon. We're back with Gary Hoffman and Shannon Farron. Gary and Shannon on KFI AM 640. It's Monday, August 5th. We will pay attention and see if there's any more news conferences coming out of Dayton, Ohio, or El Paso, Texas. Of course, the scenes of a couple of shootings this weekend, one in El Paso that killed at least 22, the one in Dayton killed uh, nine, and and the gunman. And then, of course, there was a shooting, of course, uh, of course, of course, there were shootings in Chicago as well, that if... These two had not happened in El Paso and Dayton. feel like Chicago would have made headlines. Seven people were killed in shootings in Chicago over the weekend, which is, I mean, part of that is it's summer in Chicago and the death toll usually rises. But they said 55 separate shooting incidents in Chicago just over the weekend. FBI Director Christopher Wray has ordered a new threat assessment of mass shootings after this weekend. And they say the FBI has about 850 open cases involving domestic terrorism. And at least a third of those cases have been notified by racial or ethnic hatred. 
and the FBI concerned that these latest massacres may inspire copycats. And that is uh, that is a legitimate concern because they come in these clusters. I read a line today that law enforcement now has to use more human intelligence sources. And the FBI had kind of moved away from looking into domestic terrorism <laughs> after September 11th. In the 90s, they were all in it. Um, but the 90s, it's like a completely different world without the Internet. Without these people finding each other right. and emboldening each other. We, uh, we've, we're talking about this article that uh, appeared in the uh, LA Times yesterday by a couple of people who work for the Violence Project. And it talked about every mass shooting since 1966 that they looked into and the commonalities between them. First, all of them or the vast majority of them had experienced some early childhood traumas, abuse of some kind. Second... Just about every mass shooter they studied had some sort of an identifiable crisis point immediately preceding, like weeks or months preceding their shooting. And the third, we're going to talk more about, most of the shooters had studied the actions of other shooters and sought validation for their motives. Now, and they make this point. People have always had crises in their lives. People have always suffered from mental illness, depression, um, points in their in their lives where they just thought they couldn't go on but in the age that we are in right now where places like 8chan and 4chan exist these dark corners of the internet this place where the ideologies can fester and grow in a vacuum that that is going to allow a lot of this stuff to rise to the level of the belief that violence is the way out of your problem. This op-ed written again by Jillian Peterson and James Densley from the Violence Project does address that commonality and said that we could make it more difficult for potential perpetrators to find that validation. They said that media campaigns like hashtag no notoriety are helping starve these people of the oxygen of publicity, that tech companies are increasingly being held accountable for being the vehicle uh, that mass violence gets its its air from. Melissa wrote us an email this morning and said, this is a plea for you to use your platform and influence to ask those in media to stop publishing the names, photos, and manifestos of these killers. Yeah. We all know mental pl- uh, illness plays a role in this, that social media and the Internet perpetuate it, that stricter gun laws are necessary, but the media needs to do it to do its part as well. The event itself is news. The person who did these horrific acts is not. Here's a couple of things that you can do. I mean, you listening can do. Um, Stop reading the stuff. This guy has this uh, manifesto or screed or series of rambling writings that that are supposedly out there. Uh, We as media organizations need to stop publishing that because that adds some amount of credibility to it. Even if you believe that it's crazy talk. It adds a certain amount of credibility, the fact that we endorse it by saying, here's what the guy wrote 20 minutes before he killed 22 people. I really think that we as humans need to act more human <laughs> to stop this stuff. You're going to talk. You're going to hear about gun control. You're going to hear about uh, legislation all day. But it's that it's that basic human interaction. The shooter in Dayton, they talked to X amount of classmates that this guy and they all knew he was a big problem. They were all scared of him. But yet there's there's no way, there's no number for me to call and say, 
hey, I had this weird interaction where uh, a guy at school told me that he wanted to kill me. Maybe we maybe we keep tabs on this person moving right. forward. I think a a pushback on that is simply there's a lot of people out there who are like that. That's terrifying. That is terrifying. Because you we simply do not have enough law enforcement or mental health officials capable of keeping an eye on all of those people. Now, the the fourth thing, we were talking about uh childhood trauma, uh the crisis points in these people's lives. Uh, the validation that these people uh, see and seeking uh, information about other shooters. The fourth commonality they all have is the means to carry out their plans. Once someone decides life is no longer worth living and that murdering others is their proper revenge, only means and opportunities stand in the way. For example, is there an appropriate shooting site that's accessible? Uh, And again, all of that is just happenstance for the most part. These people go to where they know their targets are going to be if their targets are women if their targets like in el paso happen to be mexican nationals if their targets are uh, if if we don't know the motive in dayton yet but if it's family members he knows where his sister was in 80 percent of school shootings they say perpetrators got their weapons from family members most of that is because those happen to be younger people and then workplace shooters tend to use the handguns that they legally owned. Other public shooters were more likely to acquire them illegally. Now, what I found interesting a couple of uh, about this, you know, these four things and then the steps that need to be done to prevent them from carrying out their, you know, their murderous revenge. This is not a concentration on gun control. It's like you were saying there's a there's a there's an amount of humanity that has been lost recently in the last years uh, decades it's accelerated to a point where we are all, we're way behind the eight ball on this but in other words one step is clearly depriving potential shooters of the means to carry out their plans shooting sites need to be fortified in some way now does that mean metal detectors yeah. or security cameras at a walmart more police more officers but i don't think security cameras are going to i don't think I don't think these shooters are talking to their loser friends on 8chan and and security cameras is uh, uh, on their mind. No, because you have a they don't care. Pub- you have a whole publications like the New York Post that put this guy's security camera image yeah. on their front page, which only perpetuates what we're trying to say we need to stop. Yeah. Another thing, like you said, is trying to find it more, make it more difficult for potential perpetrators to find validation for their planned actions. The no notoriety thing. The media organizations, whether it's the Associated Press, by the way, who I cannot believe. The Associated Press has been around for 180 years, I think. The Associated Press still has not figured out that they need to stop publishing the names of these guys. They have not figured that out yet. And I don't know why they believe that this is a necessary thing. If you you could put it, uh, you as the Associated Press could could keep the name and make it available only to subscribers of the Associated Press service or something. I like would that. love to see an alert that says that the Associated Press has made a policy change, and here's what it is. Right, we're not identifying these people anymore, and we're not going to listen. 
If you're a news organization, you want to go find it out, you want to ask the police department what the identity of that guy is, go for it. But we as the Associated Press are not going to do it anymore. I think we're still at a place, though, where they want to publicize the name so we can find out what happened in this person's life and where we went wrong in terms of being not being able to prevent this or stop it. Because, you know, because because we have the names, we're able to look through the past and come out with those four commonalities and right. things like that and realize that we need to reach out and red flag people. And Well, if if the majority of these people are suicidal or they don't mind dying because yeah. a lot of them believe that they that's the way that this is going to end. Even the guy in El Paso said on his post, I'm probably going to die today, even though he didn't. The vast majority of them appear to be suicidal. And we've talked about the crises that are available and observable before they start shooting. We, all of us, need to be better at identifying these crises, identifying the signs of mental illness like this. Everybody should be able to receive training in some way to identify the signs of crisis. And to go back to the very first thing that so many of them had suffered childhood trauma, exposure to violence at a young age that we need to be able to extend some sort of mental health care, ex- broaden it. Now, again, this is not to say that gun control does not have an, uh, does not have a role in making these things not happen anymore. But if all of these things go in it, you can't ignore them. You can't simply say an assault weapons ban is going to fix this. You can't simply say expanding mental health care coverage. We haven't even touched on this is the like, issue of, of psychotropic drugs in right. the use of these kids. This right. is like the homeless problem. There's not one go-to to fix this. There's a lot that goes into it, and you really do have to triage the situation. And also, just talk to people. We get off our phones. Yeah. We get off our screens. Oh. Uh, when we come back, the president held a news conference early today. We'll play some of his comments for you, uh, his response to what's been going on. You going to make it? Yeah. Okay. Gary and Shannon. They were feeling like gold. KFI AM 640. Gary Hoffman. Shannon Farron. Back to Gary and Shannon. Looks like the Dow is down 755, 757 again on worries that China is striking back in response to the president's threat to put further tariffs on Chinese goods. Next hour, we're going to tell you more about a, um, uh, an arrest after uh, Gilroy. It seems like that was weeks ago, doesn't it? Shooting in Gilroy. It was just yeah. a little more than a week ago. Police have arrested another guy after some online posts that threatened that his goal is to kill 500, not three people. We've what, got, what kind of geniuses are we working with here? We've got a new death toll for El Paso at 22 now and uh, nine in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, the president came out this morning. He had uh, just a couple of quick comments yesterday on uh, before he was traveling. I think he was in New Jersey. And then this morning held a news conference alongside Mike Pence at the White House to talk about what is, uh, what is going on. These barbaric slaughters are an assault upon our communities, an attack upon our nation, and a crime against all of humanity. We are outraged and sickened. 
Okay, there's a couple of things I want to point out. He did talk about mental health, like we were talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, he, talking, he talked about the condemnation of white supremacy. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. And then he also said this, and this is the one I was going to take issue with. Ensuring that those who commit hate crimes and mass murders face the death penalty. That doesn't mean anything to somebody who's willing to go into a Walmart and shoot at a thousand people. Because it's a suicide mission. They're yeah. not thinking about tomorrow. That's that if they're all convinced the, that this is going to be the end of their days, that they're going to go out in a blaze of glory. The idea of extending the death penalty or ensuring that the death penalty is is uh, executed. Mm, sorry, bad word. That doesn't make sense to me. And the, part of the frustration of the conversations that we see after situations like this is. There are, there are people who want to impose laws, whether it's a gun control law, mental health laws, red flag laws, whatever it is, that have zero impact on the stories that we're talking about here. And the idea that you would outlaw a specific kind of weapon, whether it's uh, called an assault weapon because of some sort of visual thing that's different about it and you know that makes a distinction between that and other weapons – the idea that you would do that and then suggest that that changes what happened in the past, that doesn't make any sense to me. We've got to be able to talk about this and suggest specific ways that we could prevent this from happening again. Well, there was a guy up in Gilroy went to Facebook to talk about his goal to kill 500 people, not just three. Police were able to pick him up. Somebody up there said something when they saw something. And that's what we got to keep doing. Gary and Shannon will continue right after this. Just saw the headline, 31 people killed in 13 hours. We're going to get updates from Dayton and Texas as we move through the show. And we're keeping an eye on the Dow, as you heard in Amy's News. Dow down 769 as this trade war between us and China continues to escalate. We are uh, seeing reaction legally to the uh, shootings from over the weekend couple of Democrats in the Republican-led legislature in Ohio have been urging their colleagues to pass gun safety proposals that were given little consideration. Of course, before the shooting in Dayton over the weekend, the state Senate minority leader and the House minority leader are particularly advocating for universal background checks on gun purchases in Ohio and a red flag law to restrict firearms access uh, for people who may be perceived as threats who have uh, violent backgrounds. I want to know if there's anybody against that. Like the Dayton shooter, right? He had a, a he was kicked out of high school for making threats. Let back in, which would be odd. If I was a parent, I would have uh, raised hell over that. Well, no, but I would say this only because I don't I don't think we have a good idea where he got his guns from. Um, but he may not have been allowed to have them. I I his- read that he was that he was not on any sort of. 
Uh, no red flag. No. Yeah, I don't know. Here's the other thing. I completely agree with calls for people, uh, calls for the Senate and the House to come back from uh, from August recess. I completely agree with that idea. If you're one of the 535 members of Congress, regardless of your position on on what response we should have, there has to be a response. A conversation. You've got yeah. to have some ability to acknowledge the fact that we cannot do this much longer. And you've got to have some sort of a reaction to this. Well, police up in Gilroy has been uh, have arrested a, a guy because he made threats online that referenced the shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival. He posted on Facebook that, quoting here, my goal is to kill 500, not three. Of course, the shooting at the Gilroy Garlic Festival killed three people July 28th. They went to his home. They said that there were no weapons. They didn't seize any weapons. And they did not believe he was truly planning an attack, but was making those criminal threats and was charged with that. Okay. Felony. Right. And violating a domestic violence related restraining order as well, which was just a misdemeanor. But here's a question just in terms of dealing with this legally. Yeah. What do you do with a guy like that? That This is why I want to have that database. You know, when people show themselves to us, whether it's writing a thread on the bathroom wall in high school or going to Facebook and, and doing this, why can't we Keep tabs on those people. Why take can't they word, lose, take their word for it? Why can't they lose some privacy rights for X amount of, of years? I'm going to make you uncomfortable now. Okay. Why don't you put your defense attorney hat on and defend that guy, Jose Pinon of, of Gilroy? He wrote, I don't want to kill, uh, my goal is to kill 500, not three. Your Honor, my client was just shouting out for attention. He had no legitimate plans. To go and attack anybody. Look, he doesn't even have the weapons. You searched his home. You saw no weapons. He was just being a bonehead on social media like so many Americans do every hour of every day. They say things. They do things. They post things for attention. Would, okay. I don't like it when you do that because it's pretty accurate. Um why? I, I guess my struggle is what do you do with this guy? What do you do with do you him? Get him do you, if you're Facebook. I don't think there's anything in the law right now that allows us to deal with him. I don't well, think the, the legislation has caught up to our idea making of putting criminal people threats, in a, yeah. Making criminal threats would be the felony. But the thing is, does that result in jail time? Is there enough of a punishment for that crime for him to get the message that you can't do that? Well, and when... And then what happens after? Say it comes with oh, yeah. a, a week in jail or something. And then and what he happens? Gets off. He gets pissed off. What happens two weeks down the line? You know, we can't surveil all of these people. If you're Facebook, though, I would imagine that you would you would go out of your way to scrub that guy from using your. He's just going to pop up somewhere else. And some other name, just yeah. like we said the earlier, right. it, the idea that you would be able to shut down 8chan or 4chan or any part of the dark web is it's a pointless exercise because in a few minutes it's going to pop up somewhere else. Yeah. The uh, Another man posted on Facebook in Gilroy soon after the shooting that he had participated in that, he that he was part of the shooting, because remember, one of the first reports out of Gilroy was 
that there may have been more than one. We saw it also in El Paso. There was a woman in the Walmart who said she saw four men dressed in black shooting indiscriminately. I don't know what the hell she saw. Maybe I guess she saw police officers at some point and confused them in the mass confusion of what was going on. But this guy in Gilroy posted on Facebook that he had participated in the shooting. Do you know what happens when you do that on Facebook? The SWAT team comes to pay you a visit to make sure that you're not one of the other shooters. Right. They finally did say that there was no one else involved but the 22-year-old, uh, I'm sorry, but the uh, the shooter in the case in Garlic, or at the Garlic Festival, this 22-year-old man was ar- arrested on unrelated warrants. That's the other part of all of this. Not only did the guy who say, my goal is to kill 500, not three, not only did he make the criminal threat itself, he violated domestic violence-related restraining order in making that statement. And then this bonehead, who's who's got warrants out for his arrest, decides to post, yeah, I was the second shooter in the uh, Garlic Festival thing. They're crying out to be stuck away in prison for a very long time. Why don't we just afford them that opportunity? The shooter up there in Gilroy, the one who did carry this out, they say that uh, they may not ever know what drove him to open fire there. That he had no social media posts, no presence online, very little public presence online. There didn't seem to be a hell of a lot of red flags in his life. We do know he came from uh, a bit of a higher profile family. His grandfather was a county supervisor for a couple terms. His his father was well-known track and field athlete. He had brothers that were pretty successful, celebrated in the local newspaper there. And I think that's right where the motive is. He had a personal beef with Gilroy and that community that and, celebrated his family, but not him. Right. And what... What was the one high-profile event that everybody, at least in California, associates with Gilroy? And that's the Garlic Festival. Yep. But uh, that may be as close as we get to sort of pinning down any sort of uh, actual motive. Well, we have a local true crime story to tell you about. It looks like it's getting to be in the area of closure. This was a guy who was a fugitive. He took off after he was charged in the murder of his wife. He was arrested in Mexico yesterday and is now in the home or the uh, hands of U.S. authorities. Tell you that story. Gary and Shannon will continue. You know what? Also, if you haven't seen the video of the judge in Providence talking to the elderly man about a traffic ticket. That's a good that's a feel good story. Go Google it. It'll make you feel better. We'll throw it up. uh, We'll have Nick find it. He's good at searching. bad Things on the Internet. Good things on the Internet. Gary and Shannon. Yeah, that's okay. KFI AM640. Back to Gary and Shannon with Gary Hoffman and Shannon Farron. Keep an eye on the big stories, of course, from the weekend. The shootings that took place in El Paso, Dayton, Ohio. Also, series of shootings in Chicago. Seven people were killed in Chicago also over the weekend. The tweet, I don't know if you saw this tweet from Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, the, uh, I don't know, astrophysicist. Is that what? Yes. He tweeted something on Sunday that he admitted was an attempt to, he said he wanted to 
help anyone trying to save lives in the United States. And he wrote something in this tweet that pissed a lot of people off. Trying to keep in context mass shootings and the deaths associated with mass shootings with everyday life in America. And he said, in the past 48 hours, the USA horrifically lost 34 people to mass shootings. On average, across any 48 hours, we also lose 500 people to medical errors, 300 to the flu, 250 to suicide, 200 to car accidents, and 40 to homicide via handguns. Our off, uh, often our emotions respond more to spectacle than to data. It's a completely different ball game here when you're gonna when you're gonna die in a violent way like that, right? And you have no heads up. Well, and these are places where you have a preponderance of safety. You, you know, you don't you when think. you when you go to the Walmart, it's not on your mind. Hey, there could be a mass shooter, but more and more it is, unfortunately. Yeah, he eventually took it down a few hours later and apologized today. He said, my intent was to offer objectively true information that might help shape conversation and reactions to preventable ways we die. Where I miscalculated was that I genuinely believed the tweet would be helpful to anyone trying to save lives in America. So mm-hmm. he apologized for, for that. Um, this is a, uh, a del- delightfully positive spin on a horribly negative story. It turns out that we have apparently captured a multi-millionaire fugitive wanted for the death of his wife from 2012 here in Southern California. Peter Chadwick is his name, and his wife was Q.C. Chadwick. They say that these two seem to have the perfect life. College sweethearts, married for 21 years, had three sons, lived in a gated community in Newport Beach, and then in 2012... Neither of them turned up to pick up their kids from the bus stop. The next morning, police in San Diego get a 911 call from Peter Chadwick claiming that a house painter named Juan murdered the wife and forced Peter to get her body out of the house. He said a man helped Juan and they were planning to cut up his wife's body and dispose it south of the border, telling 911, my wife's dead. They took her. Now, police immediately said, what? No, they did not believe him. Yeah. And how'd you get those scratches on your neck? Hey, and where'd that dried blood come from on your hands? Hmm. They um, arrested him. And he, after he was released on a million and a half dollars bond, he was waiting trial. He did not show up for a hearing January of 2015. He had already surrendered his British and American passports. He agreed to live with his uh, father, who apparently was a wealthy investor. And when Newport Beach PD went to go pick him up, show him, uh, you know, escort him very nicely to court, they were told, oh, Peter doesn't live here. We don't know where he is. A fugitive task force found his bank accounts worth millions of dollars had been cleared out. And investigators also learned of books that Peter Chadwick had read about how to change identities. Oh, there was another one that was uh, how to live on the run successfully and surviving in Mexico (laughs) available right now on Amazon.com. I feel like one of the the keys to changing your identity is not to leave those two books behind. (laughs) There is that. They, um, if you remember, Newport Beach Police, we talked about this, did the story, did a podcast 
reliving the story of Linda O'Keefe, a little 11-year-old girl who was killed back in 1973. Right, right. Now, they did this as well, this story of Peter Chadwick, in an attempt to try to bring more information uh, to kind of refresh everybody's memory. They did a, a podcast called Countdown to Capture, and it was several episodes long that was released last year, last September. They had a website that included the uh, 911 call that had pictures of the crime scene, etc., According to NBC4, Peter Chadwick has been arrested. He was arrested late yesterday in Mexico and is currently in the hands of U.S. authorities, assuming it would be the U.S. Marshals that would be working down there. Now, if you wanted to know what it felt like to be on the run in another country after you've murdered your wife, uh, take a look at this mugshot. This looks like somebody who has uh, been worried and been afraid about being found out. Yeah, this every is, day since 2012. This is not sitting on a uh, on a beach in a lawn chair with a Corona and a lime for for five years. No. This guy's been worried the entire time. When we come back. Um, I guess Poop Patrol is a little lighter, right? It's kind of a yeah. I mean, you know how much these Poop Patrol people make. I mean, would you poop? Would you pick up poop for this amount of money a year? Because I would. Human poop? Yeah. Uh, I've had I've had many jobs where I've picked up poop before, but just not human poop. Outside of being well, your a kids. Father, that's true. But they, that's they that was rare. That was every once in a while. It yeah. wasn't a common. I've picked up more dog poop in my life than I've ever I ever want to talk about. But human poop is a different game. Really? Oh yeah. Huh. All right. We'll go through uh, all the different types of poops and where they are in your hierarchy list when we come back. All right. Gary and Shannon will continue. We're back with Gary Hoffman and Shannon Farron. Gary and Shannon on KFI AM 640. Hey, the Los Angeles Chargers have announced that the team, in partnership with EA Sports and Madden NFL 20, will hold a first-of-its-kind Madden rating combine this Saturday, August 10th, at Jack Hammett Sports Complex in Costa Mesa. Register for free at chargers.com, and you hit the nail on the head, Hoff, this morning when you said, we need football back. I know you need football back. That's why I said I think it. America needs it back. I'm still fine with uh, with baseball, and I know this is weird because we're getting into the middle of August here, beginning of August, middle of August, when things start to slow down baseball-wise. There's still plenty to keep me entertained. Usually I go through a doldrum of like well, two or three weeks where I won't watch it. And my, my par- I was talking to my parents, too. They're Giants fans, and, uh, and it's exciting to have a team that's having its first hot streak in Sweet. three years. Telling me there's a chance. And you're still, what, 13 games back from the Dodgers? but No one's going to catch the Dodgers. No, I know. But they're two and a half out of the wild card. That's exciting. I was watching a lot of uh, Little League baseball as well over the weekend because they had the Senior League Championships, I think 14, 15-year-olds. Kids with like eight of the kids on a on a nine-member team have mustaches. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were, it was the team from Hawaii playing the team from Curacao. Uh, anyway, that's we, uh, we've obviously been following the stories of the uh, shootings that took place in El Paso, Texas, in Dayton, Ohio, 
and the uh, shootings in Chicago that left seven people dead. And we'll talk more about it as we get into Swamp Watch, talk about uh, the Washington, D.C.'s reaction to this. And then in the 1 o'clock hour, we're going to go to those locations. We're expecting to uh, to talk with people who are in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. Stocks are plunging on Wall Street. Dow down 831 points. This is because China let its currency sink to the lowest level in more than a decade, which obviously escalates our trade war with China. This is the worst drop of the year, down uh, about 3%. It looks like tech companies and banks fell the most. Apple, Bank of America each fell 5%. There was a um, guy named Nelson Butler who was a gangster in L.A. And I mean current-style gangster, not old-style gangster with a zoot suit. And he went to prison for 30 years for killing a person. He was released last year from San Quentin. And he needed a job. So he went to work at Pit Stop. That sounds nice. Pit Stop is the San Francisco City program that put public toilets in the Tenderloin District there after children complained of dodging human waste on their way to school. They have bathrooms now that are staffed, and they have 25 locations. And... Some yes. good news. The program is going to expand to Los Angeles because we, too, have people defecating on the streets. The Associated Press talked to a guy named Ahmed Al-Barak. He has a corner market. And he says it was terrible in that area before the city put in a, a portable toilet. He says he no longer regularly sees people relieving themselves in broad daylight. He says he does not see as much feces and urine on the streets. He said, we used to have a disaster here. I used to call the city all the time to come and clean it's b- because these people don't know where to go. He, he remembered one woman in particular who shrugged at him in a what can you do kind of gesture as she squatted to relieve herself. What, gal's got to go. <laughs> what are you going to do? <sighs> now, the guy I told you about that came out of San Quentin works at Pit Stop. Technically, all he's supposed to do is prevent drug use in there. Log the number of flushes and make sure that homeless people don't set up camp. Like, they don't use it as a condo. He earns more than 70 grand grand a year. Pretty good. I'd I'd work at Pit Stop. That kind of change. Nelson says, the reality is I'm a security guard. I was a babysitter. I was a social worker. I was a counselor. I did a lot of things that necessarily in the scope of my job description, but this is my community. So my thought was, if I saw somebody that needed help, that's why I'm here, to help. Now, listen, that's exactly the kind of guy that I want out there on the front lines of this. Unfortunately, he's got to, you know, be very in tune with people's bowel movements. But if he has this mentality of, you know, this is my community. I want to make sure that I help as many people as I can. That's perfect. These are expensive. The toilets each cost an average of $200,000 a year to operate, most of the money going to staffing and overhead. I'm assuming toilet paper and Windex or something? Steam cleaning. I think they steam clean. They steam clean this, huh? Listen to this. Sacramento. Their one-night count of the homeless increased 19% in two years. In Los Angeles, we have a 16% increase over a year ago in the amount of people sleeping on the streets. 
Yeah, and these these toilets are a uh, you know a band aid. There's nothing. I was reading. Uh, I forget where where I was reading this over the weekend, but they were talking about all the red tape and bureaucracy when it comes to putting affordable housing in Los Angeles. That we have basically ruled ourselves into a corner when it comes to putting up affordable housing in this county, and that until they cut that red tape, you're going to have more more people that are just on the street. Yeah, and that's one like we talked about the idea of how to prevent mass shootings. This is not there's not one answer or even three answers that you could put in place that are going to fix the problem. There's about twelve of them. And some of them are not even related to the other things on the list, but they have to be done in order to prevent any of these things from going on in the future or to put, you know, to punch homelessness in the face. Um, you had a question about the hierarchy of of poops. Yeah. Well, you you said that you treat poop differently. I've uh, been. Animal poop. I mean, what what about large animals? Like, what about a horse? Is that. Hmm. Um, let me, is that, let me see if I put this. I'm trying to I think because that's the, a lot of output. The least, you know, offensive to the most offensive. I'd say. I wonder what llama poop looks like. Just like horse stuff. I mean, oh, they really? eat a lot of grass. I'm going to Google that. So I would say llama. Um, I would say the least offensive type of poop for me would be a rodent poop, like a hamster, okay. a mouse, a sure, gerbil, just like the little like pellet type thing. It's a little pellet; it dries yeah. out really quickly. Yes, you run the risk of hantavirus, but outside of that, it's just a sweepable thing. You're not going to get into <laughs> a lot of trouble with that. Right. The second least offensive to me, but for a different reason, is bird poop. I think probably because it's so ubiquitous. You just see bird poop yeah. all over the place. It's all over the car. And it's it can I, land on you if you've been the bird poop to pond. They say it's good luck. It is good luck. Is it? Might be. I just remember maybe not in that moment. I just but. remember the sheer horror when I was in elementary school and a and a bird pooped on me at recess, mm-hmm. and the kids made fun of me. From that point, I why would, aren't you? Don't you feel bad about that? No, because you had good luck the rest of your life. Oh, okay. Uh, I have a fun fact that I just stumbled upon. About poop? About llama poop. Okay. Llama poop has almost no order. Odor, excuse me. No odor. That's good. Isn't that nice? Um, it also makes well, for really good that, fertilizer. I'll have to put that in the horse and cow poop thing because the, a lot the, of times those dry out very quickly. The Incas in Peru would burn dried llama poop for fuel. Yeah. You could burn cow chips for, for fuel as well. I would say that uh, dog poop is below that, just below the horse and cow and llama poop in mm-hmm. terms of it's it, we're getting more and more offensive as we go through. Yeah. Only because uh, dogs tend to be cute. So you're willing to look past whatever nastiness comes out of them and to pick it up before you have to mow the lawn. Mm-hmm. Then you get into child poops like my relations that's least that's less offensive and the most offensive would be any other person's poop did you know that human poop the adele penguin can shoot its poop quite some distance from its body like a super soaker they say <laughs> come on we had to laugh we needed a little laughter all right gary and shannon will continue you can't leave yet 
640. Gary Hoffman, Shannon Farron. Back to Gary and Shannon. The two shootings over the weekend dominated the headlines, of course. The shooting in El Paso. We got the unfortunate news that the death toll went up this morning. Overnight, somebody died, and then this morning, somebody died in the hospital. So the death toll from El Paso is at 22. In Dayton, Ohio, it's at 9, plus the gunman who was shot and killed by police, we believe. So that was uh, a total of 10 people. The president spoke this morning and talked about many different reasons why we've seen an increase here and things that need to be changed as a result of it. Didn't offer any specifics uh, on any sort of gun control. and Didn't say anything about calling Congress back uh, from their August recess to address any of this. But a lot of people have. Um, and we'll see if the president says anything more. There's nothing on the public schedule today from the White House, but we'll keep an eye on it. The U.S. Border Patrol had had closed its inland checkpoints around El Paso. Uh, they were closed for several months due to uh, staffing shortages. But they've reopened those uh, following the shooting there. Uh, They said that amid fears that the immigrants in this country illegally might not seek help after the shooting, U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced it would not do any enforcement at area hospitals or shelters. I think uh, the latest number I saw is of those 22 who were killed in El Paso, at least seven were Mexican nationals. I guess that area of El Paso, specifically that mall and the Walmart that's right next to it, were very popular with people coming across the border, buying stuff and heading back home. Well, we had a drunk pilot last week, did we not? On a flight from Minneapolis to San Diego. Mm -hmm. 37-year-old pilot had uh, reeked of booze through the airport screening lines. And you thought at the time that might be a little young for a pilot. In terms of what you want to see in, in you know, in the front of your airplane. Uh, right. I prefer Vietnam era pilots. Maybe somebody who's in their 60s, say. Yeah. Okay. 60s. Well, that's not going to solve the problem. United Airlines Flight 162 to Newark, New Jersey from Glasgow was scheduled to leave at 9 a.m. yesterday. The two pilots were both arrested on suspicion of being under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And police in Scotland said 45-year-old pilot and 61-year-old pilot. Mm. 61's on the on the low side. That it, that would be low for someone uh, Vietnam era, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, but under the law, the legal alcohol limit for pilots, navigators, and other flight personnel subject to breath the tests is less than half of the drunk driving limits for motorists on Scotland's roads. I don't know what, what is it, that I, level. I don't know if it's .08. I'll for them, which would make it .04 for pilots and flight uh, personnel. Um, but I think that any amount is probably too much. Yes. You? You... Yes. And if they're showing signs of it, I know that there are random tests that they do every once in a while. But um, if they are showing signs, then maybe that's a sign. Of that that's terrifying. Both of the pilots drunk. Do you know what hidden city tickets are? No. Um if you've seen, it's never worked out for me, but I've heard of people who will book a ticket, long distance trip, say to London, L.A. to London with a stop somewhere, D.C., New York, Newark, something like that. Their real intention is only go to only to go to New York or Newark or New, uh, New uh, Washington D.C. But the flight itself, because it, it was technically a connecting flight to London. 
they only sit on the first half of the plane, uh, the first half of the trip. They never make that second half of the trip because the two-stop, you know, the one-stop to London ticket is cheaper than a non-stop to New York in many cases. Oh, interesting. Airlines are saying that they're, there's nothing illegal about you booking a ticket like that. They just don't want you to. So they will put it in their rules, a lot of airlines, that you're not supposed to book these hidden city tickets. And the only real recourse they have, they're not going to sue you and get the money back or anything like that, is they'll pull any of the rewards points that you have. Wow. Yeah. That's, so I saw this. Germany, uh, uh, Lufthansa in Germany, sued a passenger for intentionally missing one leg of his flight trying to take advantage of what they call this hidden city loophole. In the case, the passenger booked a trip from Seattle to Norway with a stop in Germany. Never intending to go to Norway, but that Seattle to Norway ticket was cheaper than a Seattle to Germany one-way nonstop. Wow, that's that, – I'm surprised they can go after you for that. Yeah. Because what if you had uh, – what if you got news, you had some business you had to take care of, and you had to uh, abort the uh, the last leg of the trip? I guess it's possible that you could argue that to mm-hmm. them. That's how I – well, as a defense it. attorney. But wouldn't you also <laughs> – wouldn't you also just out of courtesy – Tell the airline, I am i don't know what to do. I'm not making it to this other flight. I don't want you to hold up the plane because you're waiting for me. Yeah, I probably would do that. As opposed to just ghosting that second flight from yeah. uh, from Dusseldorf up to Schmirk and And they're Stutz. doing their head count and they've got a head missing. Something like that. All right, we come back. Uh, a little bit more. We're going to get into uh, some what's trending. We're also trying to get a hold of uh, ABC former ter- counterterrorism expert uh, Steve Gomez. Talked with Handel a little bit earlier today. We're going to talk with him, hopefully, about what's been going on with the suspects in these shootings that we've been talking about from the weekend. Also, thanks for all the fun animal poop facts you're sending in. Got to smile about something. That's right. Gary and Shannon will continue right after this. Gary and Shannon, well, it was just 13 hours and 1,300 miles that separated the two mass shootings over the weekend. 31 people killed from that packed shopping center in El Paso to a hotspot nightlife stretch in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah, coming on to help us figure all of this out, uh, former FBI special agent in charge here in L.A., Steve Gomez, ABC News contributor as well. And, Steve, we've talked before about situations like this, unfortunately. And I think last time we promised we'd have you on to talk about baseball and football, and we haven't since then. Um, Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Your experience in law enforcement, uh, federal law enforcement specifically, when when you wake up and you see stories like this, is your process of thought like everybody else's? I mean, or do you look at these differently than uh, than a normal person would? Well, when when this happens and I see it, like I'm impacted by the the gravity of it, the, the fact that there are deaths and injuries, and uh, and and of course we want to try to limit those and uh, and and whoever committed the uh, attack, we want to make sure that we catch them, stop them. In one case, they were you know, the suspect was neutralized. But what I always go back to every time I look at a situation like this is what could have been done to prevent it from happening. 
So I come from a school that is post 9-11. I work law enforcement as an LAPD officer and as an FBI agent during the late 80s through the 90s. And then 9-11 occurred and I started to work counterterrorism. And at the time of 9-11, the director, uh, Robert Mueller, basically said to everybody in the FBI that we are now changing and we are going to be a prevention type of organization. And we're not going to let any stone go unturned when it comes to terrorism. And any time there's a tip, lead, whatever, any kind of information about a potential attack or, or somebody that's radicalized, we are going to investigate the heck out of it. And so we have determined that there is no threat. And so that is how I approach every one of these situations. And quite frankly, I'm now in the private, uh, private security consulting um, world, and that's how I approach it for every one of my clients. And that's how law enforcement is approaching it. I know the FBI is. And law enforcement, all law enforcement needs to all across America. But I believe that the public has to also approach it in that manner. They have to think if they came across somebody who concerns them, said something that's odd, violent, maybe talking about suicide, talking about guns, whatever the red flags are, they have to think, is that the next active shooter? And they got to do something to prevent it from happening. Yeah, Steve, we were talking uh, in the first hour here a lot about how law enforcement now has to do more of what's called uh, more human intelligence uh, when it comes to sources and and things like that. Now, do you think the FBI spends as much time on domestic terrorism as it should? Or do you think that, you know, like you mentioned, uh, post 9-11, it was always kind of looking at Islamist extremism and things like that. Do you think there's enough focus on domestic terrorism now? Well, domestic terrorism and those ideologies, whether it's white supremacy or anarchists or or what have you that fall in that domestic terrorism program, it's always existed. There's always been that ideology, that mindset, and people that were following those ideologies. But the attacks weren't nearly as many as we are seeing now. So they have the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force have allocated resources to the domestic terrorism program as opposed to the international terrorism program. The IT, as we call it, um, you know, Al Qaeda, ISIS, and so on, always got the lion's share of the resources. And so, in this day and age, given the attacks that we're seeing, they have to ensure that those resources are allocated properly to domestic terrorism. And I'm, I'm not saying that they should only be taking resources from the international terrorism side if that's what is appropriate. They need to look within the FBI because there are various other programs, counterintelligence, cyber, criminal programs, white-collar crime, criminal enterprise. And I've got a ton of friends that are on that side of the FBI that would be yelling at me because that's where I came from the first half of my career. They would be, you know, they would all be screaming. You're talking about taking bodies from the criminal side over to the, now the domestic terrorism side. Well, you know what? Unfortunately, domestic, uh, terrorism in general, the, whether it's IT or DT, is the number one program with the FBI. So we have to treat it as such, whether it's IT or DT. Well, it, along those lines, would you see a program being set up within the FBI, which would potentially uh, involve local law enforcement as well? but a specific program designed to stop these types of events from happening, whether you want to call it a mass shooting or a serial shooting, whatever it is, but specifically designed just for this type of an incident. Yes, I I think that they have already been going down this road. They have what's called the domestic terrorism and hate crimes fusion cell that is addressing these types of crimes that are hate-related and 
involves somebody that is in the category of a domestic terrorism group um, or follows that kind of ideology. Um, because the fact is, in the FBI, hate crimes are handled as a, a civil rights matter, which, which is appropriate, but it's on the criminal side. So they now have, they're already working those together, and that's what is needed. And there, there are resources that are coming from both sides and expertise. So now it's a matter of making sure that those are being bolstered, that you have the uh, local law enforcement, local, state, and other federal agencies involved. Um, ATF is a key player in this. I mean, ATF knows all about the guns. Um, they can trace them. They're they are We no. lost Steve. I didn't do it. Oh. There he is. Oh. I could listen to Steve Gomez talk all day long. All right. So, well, so much good information. We'll see what uh, we'll see if we can get, connect back with him. Uh, the thing is that it, it's interesting to hear him say the specifics of we've we've sort of formulated within the FBI what appears to be sort of the the next evolution of this which would be a task force specifically a tasked with this yes. type of incident uh steve i wanted to ask you you talked about uh, working in the, in the 90s and we were talking about how it's just apples and oranges when you're trying to sniff out who these people are and you've got all of these dark corners of the internet how do those sites complicate or how do they help you investigate these kind of guys well they complicate it from the standpoint that these potential attackers that have these that believe in this type of deranged ideology they have a place where they can go and um, look at material and 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 various uh, types of propaganda they have sites where they can connect with uh, various people that are like-minded and what that does is that leads them down that path of violence a lot a lot faster and uh, they become more of a determined attacker because you know they have other people that they are talking to and, and we've seen this with various other things. You know, we've seen this with international terrorism and the radicalization of uh, ISIS followers. We've seen this with child predators and how they have become, you know, more prevalent ever since the Internet uh, and various other, uh, you know, other crimes. Same thing's happening here. So it makes it more of a challenge and complicates it because this allows these attackers to, to move forward. It also allows the FBI and other agencies to identify those kinds of people. But the big problem that they have is that when it comes to domestic terrorism investigations, they're very difficult. it's very difficult for the investigators to gather information on people that, that are basically espousing First Amendment-protected uh, um, speech. And that is something that the lawmakers have to look at. They have to allow the investigators to have a little more flexibility in taking information, rhetoric that is appearing to be hate-related, violence-related, and that'll predicate an investigation, and they can go out and pursue the, the, uh, the suspects uh, in an investigation using human sources, wiretaps, all the different techniques. Wow. Steve, we appreciate everything that you say. This is fantastic stuff. And I uh, promise we will get you on to talk about something that's not as uh, as unfortunate as a math shooting next time, okay? Well, football season is starting. Yes, and, sir. Uh, even, though all of, even though all of my sons are done playing football, um, I, I still uh, know the sport, love the sport, you know, pro, college, high school. I'm already looking at the various high school games that I'm going to go attend. Uh, cool. Shout out to my alma mater, St. Paul High School in Santa Fe Springs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> next, next time we'll have you break down A-gap versus B-gap for us. Maybe a little cover, too. Exactly. 52 Bandit. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Steve, thank you very much. Great. Great talking with you. Take care. Steve Gomez, their former FBI special agent in charge in L.A., and uh, hopefully a fan of the wing T offense as well. Yeah. We'll be able to get into 42 that. 42 trap counter. Um, when we come back, we'll try to lighten it up just a tiny bit. Uh, there was a meeting that there was video of a meeting that made its way around the internet and i had to watch it a couple of times to make sure that it was a real thing this is and you listen if china ever invades or if china and russia team up and they're like we want north america it's theirs yeah it's theirs we are wussified officially Hmm. Hmm. gary and shannon Back to Gary and Shannon with Gary Hoffman and Shannon Farron. I mean, if you're going to be stupid enough to threaten our lives on Facebook. I don't even know what prompted that. Was it the A-gap, B-gap thing? Probably. Don't like the wing T offense? Yeah, that wing T is really controversial. But thank you for revealing yourself as a see something, say something. Bottom of the hour, we're going to get into uh, how things have been going in terms of Washington, D.C.'s response to the shootings that we've been telling you about in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. And uh, an argument about a couple of things. Number one, uh, Democrats, of course, the all the candidates are, are racing to say that President Trump is responsible for all of these. Uh, Beto O'Rourke doubling down on the opportunity to call the president a racist again. Uh, doing so emphatically. And uh, if you believe that voting for Beto O'Rourke is more important now because this happened in a place that he used to represent in Congress, then sorry, that's not the way it goes. Uh, but we'll talk about these um, red flag laws that people have been calling for specifically. The Democratic Socialists of America. Ever heard of them? Well, they had their national convention in Georgia this weekend, and it got some attention because there were some complaints made at the convention. I cannot imagine what the entire thing sounds like. but I feel like it's a Saturday Night Live skit. We have about a minute's worth of this, uh, of the meeting. It was a huge meeting room. Looked like a couple hundred people. And... They were discussing things that they need to do as the Democratic Socialists of America, the convention, the the platform that they're going to come up with, et cetera. So that starts mid-sentence here. This is going to blow your mind. If we want to defeat capitalism, we are going to need a party that will organize working people to fight for the demands that we want and to win socialism. Okay, so that's the kind of things that they're talking about. In the meantime... Somebody takes to the microphone that's out in the audience. Thank you so much. Right, right uh, quick point time. of privilege. Quick um, point of personal privilege. Yes. Um, guys, uh, first of all, James Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. I just want to say, can we please keep the chatter to a minimum? I'm one of the people who's very, very prone to sensory overload. There's a lot of whispering and chatter going on. It's making it very difficult for me to focus. Please, can we just, I know it's, we're all fresh and ready to go, but can we please just keep the chatter to a minimum? It's affecting my ability to focus. Thank you. Who raised that kid? I want to get his mother in here. I want to. I want to point something out as well. Something I've never heard before. Um, guys, uh, first of all, James Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. Oh, so that's part of our 
our introduction. That's your welcome. Now. Yeah, so, your introduction. Hey, Shannon Farron, yes. KFI News. Is she her? Is that what was that part? She her? Oh, she her. Got it. Today. Well, yeah, it's it's totally fl- fluid. it could be fluid. You never know. Mm-hmm. She questioning. Maybe. She questioning? Yeah. She he. What if I said she he? Question mark. It's up to you. It's totally up to you. What are you going to do? I'm going to say uh, you need to guess, and you better not guess incorrectly because that proves how much of a hater you are. Because that triggers you. That's right. Mm -hmm. Don't trigger me. And whatever you do, don't chit-chat about me. It gets worse. Makes it hard to focus. So James has a hard time focusing with people chit-chatting. Please, can we just... I know it's we're all fresh and ready to go, but can we please just keep the chatter to a minimum? It's affecting my ability to focus. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, comrade. Okay, is there a speaker against name, point chapter, pronoun? Privilege. Point of personal privilege. Yes. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone. Okay. Okay, now wait, hold a second. He was apparently... The second guy... Was triggered. The first guy's trigger. Yeah, because James had said, hey, guys. Um, Guys, uh, do not use gender. That is gendered language. And listen, by the way, this is my favorite part about this. I'm going to see if I can isolate this. It's at the very end of it. This guy is so perplexed and flustered by this. emotional. Please do not use gendered language to, to address everyone. That, that that last breath. I don't know if you can if you'll hear that in the car, but the it's like he's on the. You know when you're you have a toddler and she's on the verge of tears because she's so frustrated and tired. That's what that guy was. To address everyone. <laughs> and then from the podium you get this. Okay. Okay. She's like, what are we doing here, folks? If this is our future, well, if this is how we're going to deal with going through life, if this is this what is prompts 1,500 people to gather in any one place, mm-hmm. we're screwed. This is the result of getting mental health days uh, at school. Which is ironic because, listen. Because you can't. We've, we've been talking you, for every hours. Every time you have confrontation in your life, you don't know how to deal with it. We've been talking for hours about the need for actual mental health care True. in this country. Real mental health actual care. Actual mental health Not care. Not just like I'm in a bad mood Not, because I'm having a bad hair day and I need to take a mental health day to deal with it. Not I'm uncomfortable and that means you need to fix it. Right. I don't know. What, okay. Okay. All right. Coming up next. Do uh, not. Did Please I? do not use gendered language to to address everyone. Duh. I don't think I did just use any gendered language. It's all gendered language. Gary Hoffman and Shannon Farron. Gary and Shannon on KFI AM 640. The Dow. Dow is taking it in the teeth today. Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 3% for most of the day. It's down 775 points right now, about uh, 25,700. We have been seeing the escalation of this trade war with China. China announced um, the response to what the president said last week, which was 10% tariffs on $300 billion uh, worth of goods coming into the United States from China to begin on September 1st. 
So uh, China announced their retribution, and that's why we've been seeing what's been going on on the Dow so far today. Laura brings up a good point on Facebook. She says the gender-sensitive language crowd is going to have a major problem with the French and Spanish because they do speak in a gender-specific way. Absolutely true. I don't. I don't know how that's being handled. I don't know either. Spanish I was just talking Italian. to my husband about that. All Latin-based uh, right. languages have that, don't they? Yes. For the most part. Everything hmm. is a gender. Well, quick point of personal privilege. Quick um, point of personal privilege. Yes. Uh, that's uh, that. They have to fix that. They have to fix that now. I think what we need to fix is that mentality of being offended by words. That's what uh, I think we need to well, fix. Well, clearly this guy's upset enough. Point of personal privilege. Stop using gender-based language to address the crowd. Point of personal privilege. Can you not yell like that? Well, I can't. It makes I, me uncomfortable. Oh, is that? It's a sensory overload. Ow. Throw paper at you. All right, it's time for Swamp Punch. Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together. This is a bad day for the president. We've got the Dow down 758. We've got two mass shootings in 13 hours. President today urging the country to condemn bigotry and white supremacy. That's what people were calling for. They said that he had to come out and say he stands firmly against white supremacy. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. Hate has no place in America. Had to say that. These barbaric slaughters are an assault upon our communities, an attack upon our nation, and a crime against all of humanity. We are outraged and sickened. Got to say that. Got to hit mental health. To better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Uh, Talks about the Internet and its importance and its role in, in situations like this. We must recognize that the Internet has provided a dangerous avenue to radicalize disturbed minds and perform demented acts. He also, and I mentioned this earlier today, talked about the potential for mass shootings to result in capital punishment you know, on the federal level, which, again, I don't – that to me is a non-start. Do it if you want to, but that doesn't do anything to stop what's going on with mass shootings because so many of the people who perpetrate these things are willing to die or believe they will die at the end of this. It was un- very unusual yesterday when the guy in El Paso opened fire and was not shot and killed. Now, I don't know if that's proof that this guy was even more cowardly than than the act itself would have uh, told us, that the moment that he was faced with opposition in any way, he just quit because he knew that he could not outgun the police officers that had responded to it. The president outlined a number of possible steps, including, as we've talked about, those so-called red flag laws that focus on better identifying mentally ill people who should not be allowed to purchase firearms. He was with uh, Mike Pence. They did not take questions from reporters. The president also calling for cultural changes, including stopping the glorification of violence in our society and video games and elsewhere. And then earlier on Twitter, he called for strong background checks and 
got into a little bit of problems when he suggested pairing gun legislation with new immigration laws. Surprised that made it uh, past his own, even his own Twitter filter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, so he he referenced, like you said, these red flag laws and the potential for stronger background checks, but didn't really get into it in front of uh, in this speech in the White House today. And I think that's sort of the next chapter that he's going to have to address. Everybody that I know of agrees mental health is a massive issue. Things like uh, violent video games and uh, the role of the Internet are probably secondary to that in that they feed into the mental illness issue. And they're not I, I don't they shouldn't be off the table in terms of discussion, but that's definitely not the main crux of what it is that we're talking about. It's it's the this enmeshing of the the um, the number of guns, high capacity weapons that we have out there, along with the mental health health crisis that we have that is then. You sprinkle on some violent video games. You sprinkle on some of our psychotropic drugs that we have so many of our kids on. You sprinkle on a bit of the freedom that the Internet gives for these people to associate with each other. You've got the massive issues there. But that that's only – that's five things. There's probably 20 things that go into these types of situations. And the thing that frustrates me the most is these guys always give us a heads up. We had the guy – in Dayton, who was writing death threats on his high school bathroom walls, threatening to kill people, had a kill list. And then we just let that guy fall off the register. We just we stopped keeping tabs on him. I wonder if that's the cultural change that he's referring to. I mean, we, we talked earlier about the the sense of community that has been lost in a lot of these places. We talked about couple of different lists one of them was four things that are common among all of the mass shooters from the 1960s on the other thing was the commonalities between the communities where these things have happened and one of them was a lack of personal interaction lack of that personal interaction that people have and they i mean they went down to the super specific like numbers that each individual has you have 13 interactions with 13 other uh individuals in your community throughout the course of a day where where these mass shootings occur or that give rise to the people who would do it it's the average is much lower yeah exactly and that i mean you think about that it's that's a very specific number of things that you and I would take for granted for every day, just personal interactions with people. We need to bring those people back into the the folds. Yeah, because because that personal interaction is what allows you to deal with your uncomfortability. Yes. It, it allows you to deal with the, you know, the microaggressions that you feel every day and realize that you can work them out without exploding in violence into uh, on, on some group of innocent people. Uh, all right. A quick thing when we come back about the the 2020 Democrats who want to lay blame for uh, for everybody um, using this as a campaign issue, unfortunately. But we'll talk about that. when We come back. Gary and Shannon. Gary Hoffman, Shannon Farron, back to Gary and Shannon. You know, 
I was just listening to the police chief there in Dayton, Ohio, and I had forgotten about all the tornadoes that hit that area Memorial Day weekend. Yeah. He said that they were just struggling to recover from that when this happens. And he said it was amazing. I heard him this morning saying it was amazing that we suffered some 14, 15, 16 tornadoes. Yeah, 15. And uh, there was not one fatality, which was an amazing thing considering the destruction. And then Saturday night into Sunday morning, they have this, uh, this shooting that kills nine people. We are going to be going live coming up in the next hour to Dayton, Ohio, as well as El Paso, Texas, to get an update on those investigations. Again, uh, 31 people killed in just 13 hours over the weekend. A few, uh, few minutes left in trading on Wall Street. The Dow Jones Industrial Average uh, is down about 793 points right now, of course, because of the ongoing back and forth between us and China. The uh, the Chinese government announced today the retribution for our announced tariffs from last week, and that has dropped uh, global markets uh, down. The Dow specifically at seven now it's down seven seventy five. Um, two of the most vocal opponents of Donald Trump have gone after him in the wake of these shootings. Uh, Congressman former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, of course, running for president, and House Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler. I intentionally avoided watching any of those Sunday morning political shows yesterday. Um, I usually try to dip in or, you know, later in the afternoon, I'll go through and kind of find some of the highlights, et cetera, read some of the write-ups on what it, what they were. I intentionally avoided all of that yesterday because I feel like the, the almost all of the comments we hear within the first 8 to 12 hours after an incident like this are either going to be wrong or they're just going to be filled with an emotion that makes no sense when you're dealing with the the actual problem solving that needs to take place after something like this. Well, there was a lot of anger. Um, you saw what happened with the Ohio governor when people started chanting, do something. Yeah. Listen, we can't, we can't then continue to go about our normal course of elections in the United States and not have some ability to recognize that if we are unhappy with the process, the way if we're unhappy with the results of the process, why do we keep doing the same damn thing every two years when we reelect 70 percent of the Congress that we're unhappy with? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I know that there's probably a you could argue that it's because there's a lack of great candidates out there. The people that we probably would want serving us in as as our legislator. They don't run anymore. They don't, they don't, want don't to win run. anymore. You have to be completely polarized. There's nobody in the middle anymore making sense and making things happen. That's very un out of vogue right now. What I found interesting is, and I'll use Beto O'Rourke as an example, I know that there are other candidates that have done the same thing. I, I read, of course, what Kamala Harris said about Donald Trump. I read what uh, Cory Booker said about Donald Trump. But I'll use Beto O'Rourke as an example here. This means something to him perhaps more than the others because he represented El Paso in Congress until last year when he ran against uh, Ted Cruz. So this meant something. to him. He cut short his campaign schedule wherever he was. I think it was in Nevada. He flew back to El Paso so that he could be there. He knows the people in the city. He knows the mayor. He knows the represent the current representative in Congress. So this is something that that means something to him more so, I'm guessing, mm-hmm. but, but more so than it would to the other 20 billion people who are running for president on the Democratic ticket. I want him to, if, if he wants to 
me if he wants me to look at him as a viable presidential candidate stop calling Donald Trump names and act presidential. I say the same thing about Donald Trump. I want him to act presidential. But if Beto O'Rourke wants to get my vote or anybody's vote, I want him to act presidential. Be above it. Be above the name calling. Yeah. And let like, you you want to come up with a plan? Because then it looks like you're using something for political gain. Right. And and I, they're all doing this right yeah. now. I mean, and, and part of it is because they're running for president and the timing of it sucks in that they can't say something without being accused of being of of exploiting this tragedy for their own gain but act presidential stop with the name calling stop saying that this is nazi era germany stop with all of that and and come up with a plan to fix this thing can we leave the nazis out of it for once no because apparently that's whatever that's the one go to that's like you're calling somebody a racist that ends the conversation call him a nazi it ends the conversation All right. Uh, I wanted to share some good news. Pacific Wine and Food Classic is back on August 17th and 18th at the Newport Dunes Resort in Newport Beach. We went. We had a great time a couple years ago. Discover the best local chefs serving summer-inspired cuisine, fine wine, cold beer, and delicious craft cocktails. Tickets for this award-winning event will sell out and are limited right now. We are giving a pair of tickets to caller number, what do you want to do, six? Six. Six sounds great to me. 1-800-520-1KFI. 1-800-520-1KFI. Yeah, it's time to call. Come on, it's time to call. Let's call. Yeah, I missed that guy. Tickets are good for Sunday only. (laughs) If you don't win tickets, get yours at PacificWineAndFood.com. Brought to you by the Orange County Restaurant Association. We'll come back, and we're going to go straight to Dayton, Ohio, and then El Paso, Texas, for updates on this weekend's uh, horrific crimes. That's coming up on Gary and Shannon. AM 640, Monday, August 5th, coming off a pretty tough weekend. Of course, emotionally for a lot of people because of the two shootings that we saw, one in El Paso, one in Dayton, also uh, shootings in Chicago, seven people were killed. But uh, economically, we've seen a pretty rough day as well. The Dow, it looks, uh, has closed down at 767 points, almost 3% to 25,717. Worst drop of the year as China counters the administration's tariffs on those remaining 30,000 on the remaining goods there with cheaper currency. CNBC said on a scale of 1 to 10, China's retaliation this way was an 11. Wow. Uh, We will see if those numbers change at all in the next few minutes as the computers finish all their calculations, etc. But we're going to spend some time now uh, talking about those uh, shootings that we first mentioned in Dayton, Ohio and El Paso, Texas. Ryan Burrow has been uh, in Dayton, Ohio and has been covering the story from from that end of it. uh, Ryan, what's going on? Well, we've, we've got a couple uh, updates since, uh, since we basically started this morning uh, with the police chief. He, he gave us a little bit more information about uh, how many rounds uh, the gunman had, and they now have tabulated about 250 potentially at his disposal that night. 
when he opened fire in this crowded uh, Oregon district. Uh, that being said, the, the one issue that still remains, even to this point, is the motive in the case. They still do not have a motive. They have seemingly ruled out racism uh, based on the victims who were killed, white, black, age 22 to 57, male, female. Uh, they think that essentially he was shooting uh, kind of just into the crowd indiscriminately. Now, that being said, the first two victims of shootings were his sister and a companion that he was with. And the question remains, did he specifically target them? He arrived with them here in this district. Uh, they separated for a period, and then somehow he ended up shooting them, uh, being the first two people that he shot. Was he targeting them, or is there a potential that for some reason, as he was about to commit this act, those just so happened to be the first two people he saw and either did not recognize them or just decided to, to shoot them anyways? Now, that's something that they're sifting through right now. And even the police chief says he can't figure it out. How could someone, A, shoot their sister, and B, if he did shoot his sister, continue on with this heinous crime? This is the shooter who I believe was kicked out of high school for having a kill list and, and, and putting uh, death threats on the bathroom walls. Yeah, he, uh, he, there, there, there wasn't any criminal behavior, according to police. They, they didn't have anything, uh, any violent behavior. They had uh, some traffic citations. But if you go back to high school, there were two times in which he was suspended, one for having a rape list and, and, uh, and one with, with classmates' names on it, and one having uh, a hit list that he apparently scribed on the back, uh, bathroom stall. Uh, was suspended in both of those cases. Sounds like he still graduated. A lot of students... Uh, who went to school with him, don't really understand what happened, but one day he was right back at school again, and it sounds like he did graduate there. So not completely expelled, but suspended twice at least is our understanding. Wow. Um, can you talk about the police response to this? I, I've been seeing stories that it took less than a minute for the officers who yeah. were nearby to put this guy down. Listen to this. Officers say that in the first 20 seconds of that first shot being fired, they had engaged him. And he was down on the ground and essentially from a fatal gunshot wound within 30 seconds. Now, that came at a very critical point because at that point, when he was gunned down right in by police officers right in front of uh, the bar, uh, which is known, which is called Med Peppers, uh, he was appearing to be prepared to enter into that bar with the weapon, uh, a bar that had hundreds of people inside of it and, uh, you know, literally no security at that point and they would have been behind the shooter. So uh, for them to kill him on his way in means that they likely saved dozens, if not maybe even hundreds of lives, at least injuries. How are people doing there? I'm assuming a bit of shock still. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of that, that moment. They, they reopened the Oregon District. Uh, the stores are open. The, the restaurants are open. Many of them aren't open on Mondays anyways, but they wanted to do this to, to show uh, their resilience. Um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to pretend like it didn't happen because there are flowers and candles and notes left everywhere up and down the block. Uh, occasionally, you'll get a group of protesters who will come through uh, demanding some reforms to, to, to guns. And um, we've also seen comfort dogs uh, walking by and people with signs that say free hugs. So um, everyone's kind of getting through this in their own way. But um, it's back open for business and they're hoping uh, that eventually time heals all. Ryan, thank you. Appreciate it. You got it. Ryan Burrow there, the latest from Dayton, Ohio. Again, nine people killed before the uh, shooter was then shot and killed by police. Um, still don't know. That that 
that sister issue is weird to me as yeah. well. And I yeah. think that I think that's actually going to be what turns out to be the motive in this. Yes. Because I've no that's not a coincidence. I don't think I've ever heard a situation like that where it's been that no. random of a place in that it was outside of a home and it was a may have been some sort of a family dispute that target that triggered all of this. Um, but again, we'll keep an eye on that. All right, coming up next, unfortunately, we will go live to El Paso. Check in with Jim Ryan. The death toll in El Paso now at 22. Gary and Channel will continue. Well, we just saw what is probably the worst stock market session we've seen all year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about 3%. S&P 500, 3%. NASDAQ down almost 3.5%. All on worries that uh, we are going to be in a full-blown trade war with China very, very soon, if we're not already in it. Uh, the, The United States, of course, announced the tariffs that would start on September 1st. $300 billion worth of goods coming to the United States from China. And China over the weekend retaliated. The Dow, again, like I said, down 767 points uh, today alone. We'll see how the rest of this week goes. We'll see if there's any buyback tomorrow or if we just continue to see this. Well, we wanted to go live to El Paso where we find Jim Ryan. Again, the news this morning that the death toll from the shooting has reached 22. Jim, what's the latest? Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, we had an update from the medical staff at one of the hospitals uh, treating the victims of Saturday's mass shooting. And we're told that indeed an elderly man and an elderly woman both died uh, today. That raises the death toll to 22. Uh, the, the count had held at 20 on, on Sunday, and I think people here were, were hoping and, and quite literally in church praying that this number would not rise, but unfortunately it has, Shannon. Can we talk about uh, the Mexican government's response to this? My understanding is that at least seven of the 22 people who were killed were Mexican nationals. Yes, and many of the injured were from Mexico as well. They uh, had come up here to do exactly what their American uh, counterparts were doing. They were back to school shopping on Saturday when a man walked into the, the store with a rifle, opened fire, and killed 22 people. Uh, yeah, seven of them were from Mexico. And the Mexican president initially issued a statement that was sort of conciliatory. It said, yes, uh, there were, at the time, he thought there were only three Mexicans who had been killed. Um, now, uh, he and the foreign minister and the uh, attorney general in Mexico say they intend to file charges or civil charges in this case. They want to be a part of the investigation find out where the man got his gun, whether it was legally obtained, uh, in, in furtherance of this uh, unprecedented filing of, of terrorism against Mexican citizens uh, case. And I understand the Border Patrol uh, had some places shut down and, and, and issued an alert that people would be able to get help at hospitals and there would be no investigations into their, uh, their, their status in the country. Uh, that may be. I had not heard that, but uh, you know, and I haven't heard you know the, the, the legal status of the people who were hurt or killed. As far as I know, they were all here legally. And these two cities, Juarez on on the Mexican side and El Paso on this side, have a symbiotic relationship, a cultural and 
and economic relationship. People travel freely between the two countries, show their passport, uh, walk or drive across the bridge, do their business, and then return to their homes on the other side. And, uh, yeah, that's so I wouldn't be surprised at what the Border Patrol did that, but I think that, uh, by and large, the people were here legally. In what's kind of an unusual twist to this, uh, this version of the mass shooting is that the guy who did it uh, was taken alive and apparently without any real fight. Um, has... Have we gotten any indication as to what he's doing with police? Is he talking about this? Is he uh, giving them any indication as to his motive? Yes, the police say he is cooperating, although obviously they're not going to say what what he's saying. They're not going to disclose that as part of this investigation. But he is said to be cooperating, and I think it may be telling that he didn't either, A, commit suicide, or B, get into a gunfight with police and allow them to kill him. You know, he may be trying to get out this message that was alluded to in this uh, this screed that's been uh, uh, attributed to him that was online for some short time, 2,500 words, talking about his anger over immigration, what he called an invasion, and his hatred of Hispanics. Jim, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Gary. Got Jim Ryan there with the latest from uh, from El Paso, Texas on what's going on with uh, the shooting down there. 22 people killed. Now, two, of course, died overnight. And this morning, in the uh, in the aftermath of all of this, the death toll went up, and I guess it could potentially go up even more. Now, to, to round out the show, there's a couple things we want to do. First of all, we talked with Steve Gomez, a former FBI special agent in charge here in Los Angeles. He had great information about how the FBI is dealing with domestic terrorism and some of the struggles that they have. And we wanted to replay that for you just because we found it to be um, very informational. So we'll get to that in a couple of minutes. But the other thing that we wanted to do is an article that we both heard about today and went through. It's an op-ed piece, actually, that appeared in the L.A. Times from yesterday. And it's by Jillian Peterson, who is a psychologist, professor of criminology at Hamline University. I'd never heard of it. I they were it's... able to. And, and James Densley, a sociologist and also criminal justice professor. He's from Metropolitan State University, and they run the Violence Project. Yeah, they were able to whittle down four commonalities about these mass shooters. Also, four things that are common with the areas these shootings happen. Yeah, and things that we can do about it. I think that's probably the most important part of what these next steps always have to be. Not just identifying what it is that went wrong, what it was that motivated somebody to do this, but an attempt to make sure that it doesn't happen again, or at least open our eyes to things that may be red flags that we can see. So what they did at the Violence Project was uh, they looked at the life histories of people who have perpetrated these mass shootings in the United States, and they built a database that goes back all the way to 1966 of every mass shooter, and they used the FBI definition of a mass shooting, which is somebody shoots and kills four or more people in a public place. So that includes school shootings, workplace shootings, places of worship, places for shopping. And they interviewed not only the people who did it, the gunmen who survived, they interviewed their families. They interviewed survivors of the shootings. They interviewed first responders. They read media, social media, if it existed, uh, whatever manifestos are, suicide notes, trial transcripts, medical records, all in an attempt to come up with a series of things that they could point to that were common in all of these. Now, the unfortunate part about it is that you're never going to say 100% of the people were this or used this or had this in their history. But they found four things that I thought were pretty pretty outstanding in terms of 
the things that we can expect to see in a situation like this. And the very first one is that the vast majority of mass shooters in their study had some sort of early childhood trauma and exposure to violence. The nature of that exposure uh, was parental suicide, physical or sexual abuse, neglect, domestic violence, and severe bullying. I think you're going to find that in many criminals' background, just that exposure to early violence. I mean, you hear about it all the time when you're listening to defense attorneys list mitigating factors when when they're defending a murderer, right? Well, he had a really rough childhood. Yeah, but it's it's somehow unlocking a piece of these people that believe that aggressive, explosive violence against complete strangers is the way to deal with what's wrong with their life. Yeah. And I don't understand, thankfully, I didn't have that in my past, so I don't understand it. Um, oh, and by the way, just a flash that I thought of here. If there's a lot of people who I would assume say, well, the answer is to shoot and kill these people before they kill anybody. As we saw in Dayton, Ohio, the police were there within seconds yes. of this guy shooting, and he was still able to kill nine people and wound dozens of others. Yes, and security cameras aren't going to keep these guys at home either. They don't care. So anyway, uh, the the first thing, the first thing that they found was the one of the common factors is this early childhood trauma and exposure to violence. We'll go through the other three things they found when we come back. Gary and Shannon. We're back with Gary Hoffman and Shannon Vera. Gary and Shannon on KFI AM 640. Wall Street, uh, Dominated the headlines today, amazingly, considering how horrible the weekend was. But the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost more than 760 points today, and they're saying it's the worst day on Wall Street all year, all because of the fear of a full-blown trade war with China. We have been going through a series of lessons, I guess, we could learn from mass shootings. There was a study that was done by the Violence Project that dated back to 1966 and went through every mass shooting incident since 66. They found Um, these four commonalities among the perpetrators of nearly all the mass shootings that they were able to study. Before the break, we told you about that first commonality, that the vast majority of mass shooters experienced early childhood trauma and exposure to violence at a young age. Domestic violence, neglects, any sort of abuse. The second thing, practically every mass shooter that they studied reached an identifiable crisis point, they said, in the weeks or months right before they acted out. For workplace shooters, they say a change in job status was frequently the trigger. Interesting. In other contexts, it's a relationship reaction, uh, rejection, excuse me, or loss often played a role. You know, maybe somebody lost their mother or their father or some or somebody else close to them. But here's a key when it comes to that, and this is important. In many cases, those crises were communicated to others through a marked change in behavior, an actual outward expression of suicidal thoughts or plans, or even specific threats of violence. These people are telling other people around them about what they're they're thinking about doing or what they're about to do. It's like the Dayton shooter who had a kill list going back to high school 10 years ago. 
You know, they they do reveal themselves. We're not we're rarely caught off guard. The third thing is most of the shooters they studied had also studied the actions of other shooters and looked for validation for their motives. These guys are going on 4chan or 8chan or whatever other dark corner of the web, and they're telling other monsters that they're thinking of doing this. And the other monsters are saying, dude, you should do it. Get out there and kill those people. And that's enough for them to be emboldened and go and put their method into action. And then the fourth thing that all of these shooters had in common, the shooters all had the means to carry out their plans for whatever that is. The means that they had a target in mind, they had uh, a weapon in mind or weapons in some cases, and all those things were available to them. Now, the interesting thing about this is the Violence Project also went so far as to ask this question. What do they tell us about how to prevent future shootings? Number one, we need to stop. We need to deprive these shooters of the means to carry out their plans. And what they're what they suggested is not just universal background checks, permit to purchase licensing, age restrictions, uh, better gun control laws nationwide, safe storage campaigns. They mentioned red flag laws, which is something that the president talked about today, but also making those potential shooting sites less accessible, more visible security measures like metal detectors and police officers. I just don't think that would have made a difference. Well, that these cases. Yeah, that part of it, the idea of of metal detectors or police officers doesn't make in my mind, doesn't make a difference in any of those. In the Gilroy example, there were officers there within a minute that the guy started started shooting. And, And then in Dayton from early yesterday morning, late Saturday night, there were officers that supposedly took him down within 30 seconds of him starting to shoot. Uh, they also say that media campaigns like hashtag no notoriety are helping starve these perpetrators of, of the publicity that they so crave. And I don't know how much of it is that they want to they want to be famous for this or infamous or they're just moved by the, the immense hate that they have felt for for quite some time yeah and they feel powerless in whatever other venue they would uh to 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 make any sort of a change the they violence project says that we in the general public can slow the spread of mass shootings by changing how it is that we look at stuff how we consume we produce how we distribute violent content that we in the media also have a responsibility to not show these guys' faces, to not show their names, to not talk about the manifestos or the political reasons why they would do this, because all of that adds fuel to their fire and is a signal to other people of like-mindedness that would suggest that maybe that's the way I get my message out. They say that proactive violence prevention starts in the schools, in the colleges, in the churches. It's with person-to-person communication, having a conversation. How are you doing today? What's going on? Reaching out. Now, and- also, But that proactivity also needs to extend to those early life traumas that we said was the number one commonality, where, where there's an understanding that early exposures to violence must be addressed in everyone when they happen with ready access to social services to affordable mental health and treatment throughout the community but also as that kid grows up the understanding that that's not something that they can get away from social workers employee wellness programs projects that teach resilience and social emotional learning things that we have so far 
uh, pushed off to the side because we're willing to get that small little dopamine rush from checking our Facebook account and seeing, hey, my life is nowhere close to how happy their life is. Uh, I should find some other way to explosively, violently outburst to make this pain go away, which doesn't work. I found it interesting that when they looked at the communities where these were occurring, that they found that those communities with a greater number of daily social interactions were less likely to suffer mass shootings. The researcher said if you looked at communities where these events occurred, the average individual had 10 and a half to 11 people that they commonly associate with compared with an average of 13 or so close associations in communities where they didn't occur. A friend of ours just posted something on Facebook in the, in the last hour. It was an article from a guy who w- used to live and work in Los Angeles, lived and worked in o- L.A. and o- Orange County for a long time, and moved to a small town in Idaho and talked about the culture shock that he experienced when he moved to a small town of 2,300 people or something like that. And one of the things is that you you just know your neighbors. It's not a question of... I know their names or I've met them every once in a while or I wave hello to them on Mondays when it's garbage day. You know your neighbors. You know all about their kids. You know all about their needs, their wants, their jobs, their families. You're connected. Because you have to be. And we are not connected. With, we are. No. With, with Right now. We are on our phones and, and there's so much, so many fewer human interactions that we're having as a whole. Because we're too willing to accept that super uh, face-level social media-type yeah. interaction. Totally shallow. Oh, I've got all kinds totally of Totally shallow. I've got all kinds of people yeah. who want to know what it is yeah. that I'm talking about. People because aren't having real conversations anymore. No. Except, except for us. Except for us. Right. I think that's clear. It's clearly we are having the real conversations. But we're, like, forced to com- communicate. When we come back... Um, We're going to replay for you the interview that we did with the FBI special agent in charge, former FBI special in charge, you know the title, Steve Gomez, about what it is that he sees in incidents like this. We'll do that when we come back to Gary and Shannon. Well, stocks tanked today on worries about how much this trade war with China is going to damage the economy. S&P 500, worst drop since late last year. China let its currency drop to its lowest level against the dollar as retaliation. We've uh, been following, of course, the stories of the shootings, the mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, in Dayton, Ohio, in uh, Chicago, where seven people were killed over the weekend in a series of shootings. And former... FBI special agent in charge, Steve Gomez, joined us earlier today to talk about what it is that he sees. And I asked Steve how he reacts as former law enforcement when he sees one of these stories. What does he do? Well, when when this happens and I see it, like I'm impacted by the, the gravity of it, the, the fact that there are deaths and injuries. And, uh, and and of course, we want to try to limit those and, uh, and, and whoever committed the uh, attack, we want to make sure that we catch them, stop them. In one case, they were, you know, the suspect was neutralized. But what I always go back to every time I look at a situation like this is what could have been done to prevent it from happening. So I come from a school that is post 
I worked law enforcement as an LAPD officer and as an FBI agent during the late 80s through the 90s. And then 9-11 occurred, and I started to work counterterrorism. And at the time of 9-11, the director, uh, Robert Mueller, basically said to everybody in the FBI that we are now changing, and we are going to be a prevention type of organization. And we're not going to let any stone go unturned when it comes to terrorism. And any time there's a tip, lead, whatever, any kind of information about a potential attack or, or somebody that's radicalized, we are going to investigate the heck out of it. And so we have determined that there is no threat. And so that is how I approach every one of these situations. And quite frankly, I'm now in the private, uh, private security consulting um, world, and that's how I approach it for every one of my clients. And that's how law enforcement is approaching it. I know the FBI is. And law enforcement, all law enforcement needs to all across America – but I believe that the public has to also approach it in that manner. They have to think, if they came across somebody who concerns them, said something that's odd, violent maybe, talking about suicide, talking about guns, whatever the red flags are, they have to think, is that the next active shooter? And they got to do something to prevent it from happening. Yeah, Steve, we were talking uh, in the first hour here a lot about how law enforcement now has to do more of what's called more human intelligence uh, when it comes to sources and and things like that. Now, do you think the FBI spends as much time on domestic terrorism as it should? Or do you think that, you know, like you mentioned, uh, post 9-11, it was always kind of looking at Islamist extremism and things like that. Do you think there's enough focus on domestic terrorism now? Well, domestic terrorism and those ideologies, whether it's white supremacy or anarchists or or what have you that fall in that domestic terrorism program, it's always existed. There's always been that ideology, that mindset, and people that were following those ideologies. But the attacks weren't nearly as many as we are seeing now. So they have the FBI and the Joint Terrorism Task Force have allocated resources to the domestic terrorism program as opposed to the international terrorism program. The IT, as we call it, um, you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and so on, always got the lion's share of the resources. And so in this day and age, given the attacks that we're seeing, they have to ensure that those resources are allocated properly to domestic terrorism. And I'm, I'm not saying that they should only be taking resources from the international terrorism side if that's what is appropriate. They need to look within the FBI because there are various other programs, counterintelligence, cyber, criminal programs, white-collar crime, criminal enterprise. And I've got a ton of friends that are on that side of the FBI that would be yelling at me because that's where I came from the first half of my career. They would be, you know, they would all be screaming, you're talking about taking bodies from the criminal side over to the, now the domestic terrorism side. Well, you know what? Unfortunately, domestic, uh, terrorism in general, the, whether it's IT or DT, is the number one program with the FBI. So we have to treat it as such, whether it's IT or DT. Well, it, along those lines, would you see a program being set up within the FBI, which would potentially uh, involve local law enforcement as well, but a specific program designed to stop these types of events from happening, whether you want to call it a mass shooting or a serial shooting, whatever it is, but specifically designed just for this type of an incident? Yes, I I think that they have already been going down this road. They have what's called the domestic terrorism and hate crimes fusion cell that is addressing these types of crimes that are hate-related and 
involves somebody that is in the category of a domestic terrorism group um, or follows that kind of ideology. Um, because the fact is, in the FBI, hate crimes are handled as a, a civil rights matter, which, which is appropriate, but it's on the criminal side. So they now have, they're already working those together, and that's what is needed. And there, there are resources that are coming from both sides and expertise. So now it's a matter of making sure that those are being bolstered, that you have the uh, local law enforcement, local, state, and other federal agencies involved. Um, ATF is a key player in this. I mean, ATF knows all about the guns. Uh, Steve, I wanted to ask you, you talked about uh, working in, in the 90s, and we were talking about how it's just apples and oranges when you're trying to sniff out who these people are, and you've got all of these dark corners of the Internet. How do those sites complicate, or how do they help you investigate these kind of guys? Well, they complicate it from the standpoint that these potential attackers that have these that believe in this type of deranged ideology, they have a place where they can go and um, look at material and, and, and various uh, types of propaganda. They have sites where they can connect with uh, various people that are like-minded. And what that does is that leads them down that path of violence a lot, a lot faster. And uh, they become more of a determined attacker because, you know, they have other people that they are talking to. And, and we've seen this with various other things. You know, we've seen this with international terrorism and the radicalization of uh, ISIS followers. We've seen this with child predators and how they have become, you know, more prevalent ever since the Internet and various other, uh, you know, other crimes. Same thing's happening here. So it makes it more of a challenge and complicates it because this allows these attackers to, to move forward. It also allows the FBI and other agencies to identify those kinds of people. But the big problem that they have is that when it comes to domestic terrorism investigations, they're very difficult. it's very difficult for the investigators to gather information on people that, that are basically espousing First Amendment-protected uh, um, speech. And that is something that the lawmakers have to look at. They have to allow the investigators to have a little more flexibility in taking information, rhetoric that is appearing to be hate-related, violence-related, and that'll predicate an investigation, and they can go out and pursue the, the, uh, the suspects uh, in an investigation using human sources, wiretaps, all the different techniques. Again, Steve Gomez, a former FBI special agent in charge here in Los Angeles. We're going to get Steve in one of these Yes, days. we do. Yeah. All right. Um, John and Ken are going to have more on all of these stories and more, of course, coming up in just a few minutes. We'll see you tomorrow. Stay dry, everybody. Blessings.